My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Roseberry here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, December 12th, 2012. We'll be doing our light edition today. And it's like a ridiculously great lecture, just like last week's. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said about God, and one of the major causes of these crazy things being said is a lack of accountability of Christian leaders on the part of Christians and elders as a direct result of the fact that they are biblically illiterate. I mean, think of it this way. How are you supposed to hold somebody accountable to something that you didn't even know that they were supposed to be held accountable to because... You didn't take the time to actually read the Bible. Um, yeah, see, this, see, that's the problem. And so uh, if if you are uh, a, a Christian listening to this program, then it behooves you to be a careful student of God's Word and uh, and to know the book inside and out so that if your pastor is wandering, drifting, or engaging in nonsense, you can take him back behind the shed and give him a biblical um, a corrective. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you get what I'm saying. So, uh, listen, here at Fighting for the Faith, once a week we do what's called our light edition of Fighting for the Faith. That does not mean that the topic is light. It means that uh, it, it, we are dedicating a, a, the program to a singular topic. And I usually hand the uh, the, the 
the, the microphone over to somebody else and uh, play for you a good lecture. Well, last week we listened to part one of Dr. Stephen Lawson's uh, fantastic series on Christ, the Reformers, and Sola Scriptura. Today we will be listening to part two, the concluding lecture in this two-part little series. And again, it's it's a barn burner. It's just as brilliant and good as last week's. In fact, rather than me talking about it, let's get right to it. Here is part two of Dr. Stephen Lawson's Christ the Reformers and Sola Scriptura. Well, I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 17. And I want to continue from last night. The message is again entitled, Christ the Reformers and Sola Scriptura, Roman numeral 2. And as a launching point, and what will really be in a few minutes, the first text that we will look at together I want to bring it to your attention and already have you oriented to it. John chapter 17, special focus upon verse 17, but I want to begin reading in verse 6 and go to a few selected uh, texts, and I trust that your eye will be very observant for the theme of the Word of God. John 17, beginning in verse 6, of course, our Lord is... In his great high priestly prayer behind the veil, it's an inter-Trinitarian conversation between God the Son to God the Father. There could be no greater commentary upon the cross than our Lord's own commentary upon his death that is impending. And this whole chapter, I must tell you, is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. And uh, my daughter was converted to Christ as I preached verse 1. It's just a very special chapter of Scripture to me. But here in the very center of this prayer, our Lord is doing as, um, as Don has suggested, he's very mindful of the Word of God, even as he prays. And so beginning in verse 6, our Lord prays, I have manifested your name. To the men whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours, and that by God's choice, and you have given them to me, and they have kept your word. The inevitability that they will come to faith, and upon coming to faith, they will persevere in keeping your word. Verse 7, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, and not only their calling and election, but also the Word of God. For verse 8 begins, for explanation now, for the words which you gave me, I have given to them. How precious were these words entrusted to the Son by the Father, imparted to these whom God had given to him, a very tight circle, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours." Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but, meaning except, 
the son of perdition, so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. The Reformation of the 16th century was a time for the truth. It was a time for the truth to flourish. And the Reformers dusted off the high ground of the Word of God and took their stand upon sola scriptura. It was this return to the authority of the Bible that did become known as sola scriptura, meaning scripture alone. The Reformers came, as they put it in the Latin, ad fontes, back to the source, back to the fountain. No other polluted pools would they draw from. No, one, no other murky, dirty reservoirs of church tradition and papal authority would they drink from. They would come back to the source. They would come back to the purest and the deepest wells of living water, they would come back to the Scripture. And in the Reformation, the Bible was restored to its central place in the life of the church, and the two leading men whom God used to towering figures was one, Martin Luther, and second, John Calvin. For Martin Luther, the ministry of God's Word was the very centerpiece of his ministry and of the church. And for this reformer, authority rested in Scripture alone, and he believed that the preaching of the Word was to be front and center in the life of the church. Martin Luther stated on one occasion, quote, I have grounded my preaching on the literal Word. He that pleases may follow me, He that will not may stay. In other words, I am leading out in this generation in the preaching and in the proclamation of the Word of God. And if that is your heart, follow me. And if it is not, get out of this line and stay where you are. For this is a movement that is built upon the inerrancy and the authority of the Word of God. Luther said, every time the church gathers... God's Word needs to be preached, or Christians should not even come together, unquote. In other words, there is one non-negotiable for the worship service, and it is the centerpiece of the service. It is the exposition of the Word of God, and without it, the church has no business to come together and no basis to come together whatsoever, for it is the preaching of the Word that is of most importance. Luther said, quote, we can spare everything except the Word. He went on to say regarding this importance of the Word of God, and we must understand these were shocking statements for him to make in a day of dead religion and mindless routine and endless ritual for Luther to be making these assertions. Luther said, quote, 
The pulpit is the throne for the word of God. The word must rule and reign in the life of the church. And the pulpit is the throne for the word of God. The only perpetual and infallible mark of the church is always the word. We are to be always distinguished as a Bible church, regardless of what the name of the church is. There is no true church of Jesus Christ apart from a Bible-centered, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church. Any other church is nothing more than a glorified country club. It is nothing more than a spiritual self-help club. It is the Word of God that is central. And Luther gave himself to the study of the Word of God. You no doubt know that he was a professor of Bible at the University of Wittenberg, an appointment that began even before his own conversion. And God locked him up in the Word of God. And day by day, he taught through the Psalms, verse by verse by verse, and God was plowing up the soil of his heart for what was to come. He then taught verse by verse through the book of Romans, then verse by verse through the book of Galatians. And it was in that experience that he had what he called his tower experience, where he was alone with God, and he said, I have pondered over these words, the just shall live by faith, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. He said, I hated the righteousness of God, because I saw that I could not meet the righteousness of God, and I was under the righteousness of God and under the wrath of God. Until that day, he said, I saw what I had never seen before, that Christ had come to provide a righteousness for him to which he could never attain. He called it a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, meaning it was a righteousness outside of himself that must be given to him by God himself. He saw that it was the righteousness of God in Christ that is given as a gift, and it is received by faith alone in Christ alone. And Martin Luther was radically and dramatically converted. He said in that moment, the gates of paradise were flung open for me, and I was born again to use his words and our Lord's words in that very moment. Martin Luther now became a force for God as he is deepening his well and his study of the Word of God. And now that he is converted by the grace of God, he is a one-man spiritual SWAT team being unleashed upon continental Europe. Luther said as he took hold of the Word of God now, that his eyes have been opened to the truth of Scripture. He said, quote, first I shake the whole tree, picturing taking the Bible like a tree, that the ripest may fall. When I climb the tree and shake each limb, and then each branch, and then each twig, and then I look under each leaf. What a metaphor looking into every nuance, into every detail, finding not uh, 
not finding not errors, but finding perfections that are hidden in the Word, the more he digs into it. He said, when I was young, I read the Bible over and over and was so perfectly acquainted with it, talking about his early years as a Christian, that in an instant I could have pointed to any verse. He went on to tell us he read through the Bible each year, twice a year. He was a man who was saturated with the Word of God. He said, quote, I have made a covenant with God that he sends me neither visions or dreams or even angels. I am well satisfied with the gift of the Holy Scripture, which give me abundant instruction and all that I need to know uh, for, uh, both for this life and for that which is to come. He spoke of the sufficiency of Scripture. He spoke of the centrality of Scripture. He spoke of the exclusivity of Scripture as being special revelation to him. And he carefully taught the Scripture, preached the Scripture, even translated the Scripture. I want you to know God will honor the man who honors his word. And there, are, there were flies in Luther's ointment as there are weaknesses and flies in all of our ointment in our life. But I tell you what, God is willing to look past many of those and to look into the heart of the men and women who take serious His Word. Isaiah 66 verse 1 says that God will look to this one who is humble and who is contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. Luther was a man who trembled at the authority of the word of God. Is it any coincidence that the Reformation was birthed because God honored his commitment? And then there was John Calvin, the most prolific expositor of the Reformation, a second-generation Protestant reformer who was so committed to the centrality of the Word of God. Philip Schaff, the great church historian, makes this statement of John Calvin. May it be said of each of us, he had the profoundest reverence for the Scripture. I just quoted Isaiah 66, verse 2. God will look to this one who is humble and who is contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. That's what Schaff said of Calvin. He had the profoundest reverence for the Scriptures as containing the Word of the living God and as the only infallible and sufficient rule of faith and duty. Calvin was so diligent in his commitment to the Word of God. We know of his commentaries. Today they are printed in 22 volumes when they were first issued. And they came out in 45 volumes as he lectured to young pastors and students there in Geneva, became the basis for his commentaries that moved verse by verse through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, sounds like a homeschool convention here going on. Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, 
Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, a harmony of the Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter, 1 John, and Jude. Staggering. This man was so committed to sequential teaching of the Word of God in its breadth, in its fullness, in its height. For him, sola scriptura did not mean simply reading our daily crumb, I mean our daily bread, and just having a little tidbit of scripture and checking the box, yes, I believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. No, he was dominated. He was dominated by the Word of God. He came under the influence of the Word of God. And he became the conduit and the medium and the means by which this Word was disseminated to thousands who were pouring in Huguenots from France, Marian martyrs from Scotland and England, as well as those there in Geneva who had crossed the line and had left the Catholic Church and had come all the way now to Christ and sola scriptura. This is what is the heartbeat of the Reformation. And when you lift the hood of the Reformation and you look down into the engine to see what was driving the Reformation that literally spread to the corners of the earth, it was this essential primary Commitment to sola scriptura, scripture alone. And then Calvin's own expositions of the word. You know, he preached on Sunday morning from the New Testament. He preached on Sunday afternoon from either the New Testament or the book of Psalms. And every day of the week at 6 a.m. in the morning, every other week, And in the winter, when it was so cold there in Geneva, they cut back to 7 a.m. in the morning. This man was preaching literally every day of his life. I know some pastors who are so worn out, they wouldn't even think of preaching on Sunday night or having a second service. They're so weary. God raised up Calvin's. God raised up Luther's. God raised up men who know that they are on this earth to preach and to teach the word of the living God. And they will give themselves to this until they die. Calvin said, preaching is the public exposition of Scripture by the man sent from God, in which God himself is present in judgment and in grace. Calvin believed in a literal presence of God in the Lord's Supper. It's a debatable topic. topic. He also believed in the literal presence of God in the exposition of the Word of God, that when the people of God would come together in the name of the Lord, that God was unusually present with His people when His book is opened and the man called and commissioned by God would stand before this book and declare, Thus says the Lord, God unusually manifesting His greatness and His grandeur and His glory. 
in the midst of his church. Calvin, as he preached through Acts, took four years. Thessalonians, 46 sermons. First and Second Corinthians, 186 sermons. Pastoral epistles, 86 sermons. Galatians, 43 sermons. Ephesians, 48 sermons. He died preaching through a harmony of the gospel. And during the week, he preached the Old Testament, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning, which gave him more sermons for the Old Testament. Job, 159 sermons. Deuteronomy, 200 sequential expositions through the towering book of Deuteronomy, which it can be argued was Christ's favorite book in the Old Testament, because he quoted from Deuteronomy more than any other book. Isaiah, 353 expositions. And you think Tom's series run long. Genesis, 123 sermons. Listen, this isn't rocket science. There is a cause and effect going on here. A very simple cause and effect. And the cause is there were spiritual leaders who were fiercely committed to the exposition of the Word of God, and they strapped themselves in the pulpit to preach it after having strapped themselves in the study to study it. And God blessed it, and God expanded it, and as we would say, the rest is history. Calvin said, quote, referring to the minister, their whole task is limited to the ministry of God's Word. Their whole wisdom to the knowledge of the Word. Their whole eloquence to the proclamation of the Word, unquote. What he is saying in the vernacular is the preacher has nothing to say apart from the Word of God. It must originate in Scripture. It must frame Scripture. It must articulate Scripture. It must explain Scripture. It must apply Scripture. And then you move on to the next Scripture. James Montgomery Boyce has commented on this Reformation and the effect of the Word of God in sola scriptura. Quote, when the Reformation swept over Europe in the 16th century, there was an immediate elevation of the Word of God in Protestant services. John Calvin particularly carried this out with thoroughness, ordering that the altars, long the centers of the Latin Mass, be removed from the churches and that a pulpit with a Bible on it be placed in the center of the building. This was not to be on one side of the room, but at the very center where every line of the architecture would carry the gaze of the worshiper to the book, capital B, which alone contains the way of salvation and outlines the principles upon which the church of the living God is to be governed. Unquote. So this is what took place in the Reformation. You want it in two words? Sola Scriptura. 
It is out from that came justification by faith. It is out from this came the doctrines of grace. It is out from this came the sovereign majesty of our God over history and providence. It is out from this came an extraordinary missionary movement. It is out from this that came the translation of the Scripture into the language of the people. It is out from this that there came even coming to this this, this continent, people coming to herald the Word of God. This morning, we want to continue our study of the commitment of Christ to sola scriptura. There could be no greater motivation for us here today than for us to be persuaded that our Savior and our Lord, the one seated at the right hand of God the Father, who has all authority in heaven and earth, was so fixed and firm upon the written Word of God. Now, last night we noted six points, and I want to simply just read them, not re-preach them, just read them. We said, first, the Bible is divine revelation. That This is what Jesus taught. It is the mind of God. It is the genius of God revealed to us in pages of Scripture. Second, the Bible is supernaturally inspired. Many human authors, secondary authors, one primary divine author, capital A, it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Third, the Bible is verbally inspired. Jesus said, it is written, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Not simply the thoughts and ideas and general principles, but every specific word. Fourth, the Bible is entirely inspired. We saw that every stroke of every letter, of every word, of every phrase is 110% inspired by God. It is God-breathed. Five, Jesus affirmed that the Bible is specifically limited to Moses and the prophets, to Moses and the law, to Moses and the prophets and Psalms. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, he affirmed the canon of Scripture in the Old Testament that we have the 39 books and also spoke a promise for the apostles that it would be brought to their remembrance all that he had said. And sixth and finally, the Bible is perfectly united. All of the Scriptures, plural, come together to form one Scripture, singular. Many authors, many doctrines, many locations, many walks of life, many centuries. Yet it all comes together to form the book. The Scripture, singular. And so this is what Christ affirmed about the Word of God. Before we move on now to beginning with now number seven, my eye sees this quote from Dr. Boyce that I, I feel compelled to read at this moment. Boyce says, The most important reason for believing the Bible to be the Word of God written. Well, I want to hear the rest of this sentence. 
And hence the sole authority for Christians in all matters of faith and conduct is. Tell me, Dr. Boyce. Is the teaching of Jesus Christ. Jesus so identified himself with Scripture, Boyce comments, and so interpreted his ministry in the light of Scripture that it is impossible to weaken the authority of one without at the same time weakening the authority of the other. Unquote. What Dr. Boyce is saying is you cannot have a high view of Jesus Christ and a low view of Scripture. It is absolutely important. You tell me whatever you think of the living Word, and I will tell you what you must think of the written Word of God. And you tell me what you think of the written Word, and I will tell you what you think of the living Word. They are the heads and tails of the same coin in this sense that to reverence the one is to reverence the other. All right, we are going to pause the lecture right there as we uh, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back with the balance of this fantastic lecture. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. 
But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand, you turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's cheating, you can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong, that's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well thought out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny and the geek in your life will really enjoy them again piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek all right we're back Warning, you don't need dreams, visions, ecstasises, or anything like that. You got the Word of God, the sure and certain, sufficient Word of God. Dig into it. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring... 
Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world, and you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Those of you who have been supporting us, thank you, thank you, thank you. We cannot keep doing what we're doing without it. All right, here is the balance of today's lecture by Dr. Stephen Lawson on Sola Scriptura and the Reformers. Here we go. Well, let's add now to our list number seven. This is what Jesus taught about the Word of God. Number seven, the Bible is impeccably true. Now, the word impeccable, impeccability, means it is incapable of error. It is incapable of sin. We speak of the doctrine of the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one interesting question to put out to a seminary student is, in the temptation of Christ, could he have sinned? Answer, no. It is the impeccability of Christ. There are certain things that it is impossible for God to do. Titus 1, 2, it is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. It was impossible for the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, to have sinned in that temptation. He is an invincible Savior. He is worthy of your trust. And so the written Word of God is also impeccable. It is impeccably true. And it is incapable of error. It is incapable of any uh, wrong teaching. This is the doctrine of inerrancy. The inerrancy of the Word of God. And by this we mean without any error, flawless, Absolutely true, perfect in all of its teaching, without any imperfections, completely accurate. In John chapter 17, we see, I think, perhaps the signature verse for this. We would expect nothing less as our Lord is in prayer. His heart is open before the Father in this dramatic moment. And what is most important comes to the surface The glory of God, verse 1, the salvation of these who have been entrusted to Him throughout the rest of this glorious prayer, but also the inerrancy of the Word of God. Look at verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. But you note there is no asterisk, no but, no exceptions, no no anything else added. It is an absolute statement of ultimate reality. Your word is truth. Would you note, as you look at it in your Bible, your word finds itself sandwiched into the middle of the verse, and it is buttressed on both sides by the word truth. 
sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of God is flanked by the truth and truth. And as we look at this, the truth, definite article, the, is a synonym for your word. Sanctify them in the truth, and now he defines what the truth is. The truth is your word. It is a synonymous statement. It, is, it can be inter-exchanged. The word of God is the truth. It is the plumb line by which everything else is measured. And then at the end of the verse, the word truth is used as a descriptive to modify your word. Your word is truth. It is the sheer, unadulterated record of the divine truth without any error. And listen, this is what Jesus believed. This is what Jesus prayed as he poured out his heart to the Father. What is truth? Truth is reality. It's the way that it is. We say someone speaks the truth, we mean they tell it like it is. It is the objective reality about God, about self, about salvation, about from whence I have come and who and what I am and where I am headed. There is one infallible source for this, and it is the truth of the Word of God. And it is this word of truth that has so occupied our Lord's mind. In verse 6, he said, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. And at the end of verse 6, he tells us how he, uh, or what follows, he tells us how he manifested uh, the Father's name to them. And the last word of verse 6, excuse me, at the end of verse 6, is your word. It was our Lord's exposition and impartation of God's Word that manifested the character of God and the glory of God to these disciples. Verse 7 continues in this thought of the Word. Now, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. And in its context, as this is sandwiched in between the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7, what they, the Father has given to the Son, and the Son has given, them, given to them is the Word of God. How precious is the Word of God. You cannot give anything more precious to anyone else than the Word of God. Verse 8, he continues the theme of the Word. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And that is only the beginning of a chain reaction that is to continue to take place. For the Father has given to the Son the Word, the Son has given to these disciples, and then the disciples were to pass on this very same Word to us. That's in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, Sola, but for those also who believe in me, through their word. And so this is what has come down to us, the word from the Father to the Son to the apostles, and now recorded for us, and it has been passed down to us. And it is this truth that has the power 
to sanctify us, to set us apart to God. Look at verse 19 and you'll see the, the, a parallel statement that helps us understand this word sanctify. For their sakes, the word there refers back to those whom the Father has given to Him. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. He went to the cross to set Himself apart for these whom the Father had entrusted to Him. It was their names that were written upon His hand that they themselves, at the end of verse 19, also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus said, I have sanctified myself for them so that they may be sanctified in the truth. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? A blind man could see this. A deaf person could hear this. Jesus believes that God's Word is the truth. Jesus believes that God's Word is truth. Listen, even Jesus said of sinful men that they speak that which comes out of the inside of them. And if there's sin in the heart, there are sinful words that come out. And so it is with the Father, a holy God can only speak words that are holy. What confidence we ought to have in this book. What, how we should entrust ourselves to the guidance of this book. How we should measure our lives by this book. For herein is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God revealed for us. Some will say, well, but God used fallible men. And it's like water running through a rusty pipe. It will pick up some of the rust in the water. Nice little illustration, bad theology. And they say sinful men, when they would give themselves to a project, it would be impossible for there not to be some flaws. Well, let me give you an example. But that is not true. And we have been comparing the living Word with the written Word. How did the Son of God enter into this world? He entered through the portals of a virgin's womb, a, a virgin who was very sinful. The Catholic Church can't quite grasp that in their theology, and they claim that Mary had to be perfect, in order to bear a perfect son, and so they want to argue her up into the Trinity as the fourth member. The only problem with that thinking is, well, then tell me about Mary's mother. If Mary's perfect, then her mother must have been perfect, and we can continue the domino effect all the way back to Eve. No, in the womb of Mary, Luke 1 verse 35 says... The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, listen to this, the Holy Child, holy, shall be called the Son of 
God. Let me tell you, that was a miracle of monumental significance and importance that a virgin gave birth to a child and that this sinful, defiled, corrupted sinner, Mary, was able to give birth to the sinless, impeccable, flawless Son of God. And it is because of the primary birthing of the Holy Spirit of God in her womb. That is precisely what we argue for, for biblical inerrancy. That God was able to use fallible men, fishermen like Matthew and John, and a persecutor of the church like Saul of Tarsus, and people who denied the Lord like like Peter, and for there to flow through them and to be recorded a word that is absolutely true. If you believe it about the virgin birth, you can believe it about the inerrancy of the Word of God. So number seven, Jesus affirmed, the Bible is impeccably true and there is no room for any alternate position. Number eight, the Bible is, Jesus said, completely trustworthy. Completely trustworthy. This is close to inerrancy. This is the doctrine of infallibility. That all that is said in the inspired word of the living God, all that is recorded as the truth of the word of God, is completely trustworthy and absolutely infallible. What that means is all that is found in the Scripture, it is not able to fail. It must come to pass. God says it and He will accomplish it. All of His promises shall be fulfilled. All of His warnings and judgments will be executed. God means what He says and says what He means. And there will be no alteration of what He has said. And that is a sharp two-edged sword. And for us, it is such a blessing that God will usher in all of the graces and all of the blessings that He has promised to us in His Word because His Word is trustworthy. There are various verses that bring this out to give you a catalog of some of these. Matthew 5 and verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, listen to this, until all is accomplished. Every little minute stroke on the most seemingly insignificant letter in the most obscure word in the Bible, Jesus said, Jesus affirmed that it will all come about and it will all be accomplished. Luke 18, verse 31, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written through the prophets about the Son of God will be accomplished. There is this inevitability. There was this sense of destiny about his life as he would go to Jerusalem and be lifted up to die. 
for us because it was written in the Word of God. Jesus also said it cannot be broken under infallibility. John 10, verse 35, Jesus states it in a most straightforward fashion. The Scripture cannot be broken. I've done a word study on this in the original language. This is what it means. The Scripture cannot be broken. It is a Greek word, luo, L-U-O, for broken. And it means it cannot be annulled. It cannot be dissolved. It cannot be destroyed. It cannot be bound. It will be executed. It cannot be put to an end. It cannot be deprived of its inerrancy and of its binding authority. It is absolutely reliable. This is the trustworthiness of the Word of God. Jesus also said in Luke 16, verse 17, that it cannot fail. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Let me tell you, you can hang your hat on the Word of God. This can be the cornerstone of your life. You can bring every part of your life into alignment with this infallible book. And it is the North Star. And it will always point you home. And it will always point you to God. And Jesus, even in His own life, understood that all the prophecies about Him had to be fulfilled, for they were written in the Word of God. Luke thirteen eighteen. It is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. Luke, uh, excuse me, John fifteen twenty five, to fulfill the word that is written in their law, John seventeen twelve, so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Matthew twenty six twenty four, just as it is written of him, Matthew chapter twenty six fifty four and fifty five. How then will the Scripture be fulfilled? But all of this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures of the prophets. Jesus understood in the face of His own death, the most troublesome and dire circumstances of His life, He knew that this path was marked out for Him and recorded in pages of inspired Scripture. It must be fulfilled. For it is written in the Word of God. John 19, verse 28. All things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture. Luke 24, 44. The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is what was our Lord's commitment. I tell you, I have been studying the Bible Seriously now for 30 years. I have been a pastor now for 27 years. I have preached expositionally four times a week for 27 years. I have written three commentaries on Job and two on Psalms. I, I have poured over this book. And I am barely even scratching the surface. The more I learn, the more I realize how little I know of the depths of the ocean 
of this book. But I want you to know that in all of these years, I am finding greater perfections and greater beauties and greater intricacies and greater nuances in this book. And never once has there ever been even a hiccup to come out of the mouth of God. Let every man be found a liar. Let God be found to be true. There's a ninth point. Not only completely trustworthy, and we are affirming what our Lord affirms. We have a high view of Christ. We want to hear His high view of Scripture. Nine, the Bible is supremely authoritative. The Bible is the first word on any subject. The Bible is the last word on any subject. The Bible is every word on any subject in between. Jesus believed in the absolute authority of the Word of God over the lies of men because when the Bible speaks, God speaks, and God sits in the heavens, He rules over all. His sovereignty rules over all. And when God speaks in His Word, the Word speaks with this same absolute supremacy and unrivaled sovereignty. The Bible does not give us suggestions, as I said last night. There are no pretty pleases in this book. There are not options being laid out for us. It is the King of kings speaking to His subjects. And He is a benevolent King. He is a gracious King. He does not swing His weight around with us and abuse His sovereignty. All things are for His glory and for our good. And as He speaks, we gladly long to hear the authoritative commandments of His Word because they and they alone will point us in the direction that is for our greatest good. Every time the Bible says, Thou shalt not, God is saying, Don't hurt yourself. And every time the Scripture commands, with imperative, thou shalt. God is saying, help yourself to blessing and to happiness. When I tell my child, do not lick your finger and put it into the electrical socket, is that because I am a mean father? Because I'm a loving father, a gracious father. And that would be so shocking for that child <laughs> to be turned on at a young age like that. When I say to one of our children, when the stove is glowing orange red, do not put your hand directly on it. That is spoken with love so that you will not harm yourself or hurt yourself. And when I say, instead, do this, it is because I am using my headship and my leadership in a way that will be for their greatest good. Multiply that infinitely, exponentially. The perfections of the Word of God are so directed toward us with supreme authority only to promote that which is for His greatest glory 
and for our greatest good. In Mark 7, in verse 5 and 8, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? The leaders of Israel had gone beyond the Word of God. And they had added rules to the Word of God that were not even found in the Word of God. And it was like stacking up a heavy burden upon the shoulders of the people to keep all of the little minute details of their man-generated, man-originated law. And it had been adopted as their tradition and they would keep it. But the disciples of Christ were not keeping these man-centered traditions. And so they came to Christ. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. His basis of appeal and his basis of authority is chapter and verse, and he appeals to the higher authority of the Word of God. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written. And he appeals to the authority of the written Word of God to establish his point. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Some traditions of men are good. Only to the point that they echo the commandments of God. We love to hear from Luther. We love to hear from Calvin. But only to the point that what they proclaim is the Word of God. And Jesus says that the authority of Scripture transcends the tradition of men. It transcends the tradition of their group. He also referred to it as the commandment of God in this very same text. So many times when Jesus was confronted, his response was very simply this. It is written. Luke 19, 46. It is written. Luke 20, 17. What then is that? What then is this that is written? John 6, 31. As it is written. John 6:45 It is written in the prophets John 7:38 He who believes in me as the scripture said His continual reference was to take his listener back to the authority of the word of God If there is anyone who could have spoken ex cathedra it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself And there were many times that he did speak and went beyond what the prophets said. But he again and again and again made his reference point to that supreme authority. It is written. The apostles echoed this when they said we must obey God and not men. Our lives must be lived under the authority of the Word of God. And it is a sweet surrender 
to the authority of the Word of God, for we have yielded ourselves to a loving and gracious King. Number 10. This is what Jesus affirmed. This is what Jesus thinks about the Bible. High view of Christ, then I must embrace His high view of Scripture. Number 10, the Bible is historically and scientifically accurate. I could have included this under inerrancy, for this really flows out of that mainstream of thought. But I want to distinguish it. I want to set it apart in your thinking that the Bible is historically and scientifically accurate. Now, we could do an entire message on this. We could do an entire conference on this. We could write a whole book on this. We could have a whole ministry on this, and many have. But just to set before you a couple mountain peaks. If someone was to look at the Old Testament, which was the Bible in Jesus' day, and they were to say, Aha, see, there are errors and there are mistakes. What would those four be? It would be, number one, a literal Adam and Eve with a literal creation. That would be number one. They would, be, they would speak despairingly of that. Number two, Noah and the flood. It works well in the nursery room. I guess you have to go to seminary someplace not to believe it. But there are many that would speak disparagingly of Noah and the flood. Third, Jonah and the great whale. Talk about a fish story. Talk about bondage of the gill. Jonah and the great fish. And then finally, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's almost as if our Lord anticipates number one, two, three, and four on the list. And in his earthly ministry, he affirms the historical and scientific accuracy of all four of these accounts without even bothering to give us overheads and a detailed explanation on why this is so. He says it is so because he says it is so. I was talking to my father last week about talking me talking to my children, him talking to me in years past. And he said, yeah, I guess there were times when I said, I want you to do this simply because I've told you to do this. I don't want, an es- I want, I don't want to have to write an essay for you. Just do this. Jesus is affirming these in like manner. Adam and Eve, Mark 10, 6 and 8. But from the beginning of evolution... But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. You know what the word Adam means, male, Eve, female. God made them male and female. You heard one day Eve was a little jealous. Adam said, sweetheart, there's no one but you. (laughs) Trust me. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. 
There's no discussion on this. There's no allegory. There's no hyper-spiritualizing of the text. There is no eisegesis going on here. It is just simply black type on white animal skin at this point or parchment. It is what the Word of God says. Noah and the flood. Matthew 24, 37. For the coming of the Son of Man. The second coming. That's a fairly important doctrine. And He will base the entirety of the teaching upon a literal, visible, victorious, bodily, triumphant return to this earth upon the historical, scientific accuracy of Noah and the flood. This is amazing. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, he believed in a real flood. Not a flood, the flood. A flood like no other flood. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day, the specific 24-hour day that Noah entered the ark. He believed in a real ark that they came in. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. And to make certain that we don't miss the punch of this, he repeats the beginning of verse 37. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Listen, you allegorize away one. You must, by necessity, if you are a consistent thinker, you must allegorize the other. You can't hang on to the second coming and throw away Noah and the flood. That is incongruent. That is irrational. That is illogical. That is inconsistent. That makes no sense. But to accept the one is to accept the other. Sodom and Gomorrah. We can't even find Sodom and Gomorrah on the map. Hard to get, catch an airplane flight to Sodom and Gomorrah. It doesn't exist. Luke 17, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating and they were drinking, they were buying and they were selling, they were planting, they were building, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same. Exactly the same, precisely the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Listen, he based the teaching of his second coming, his literal second coming, upon the pillars of the day of lot and fire and brimstone. You knock out those pillars and the truth of a literal second coming comes crashing down if you take what Jesus said for truth. And then finally, Jonah and the great fish, Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. They had seen so many miracles. They had seen so many signs. And they have just attributed 
the miracles that he performed to the working of the devil. How hypocritical. We want to see some more signs from you, and then we will believe. Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He based the truth and the teaching of His bodily resurrection upon the authenticity and the validation and the reality of the truthfulness of Jonah who was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. You cast doubt upon Jonah and the great fish and you have destroyed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at least in your mind. How inconsistent. I want you to know this book, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, it is trustworthy, it is true, and that which even the world would scoff at the most, Jesus, almost from an argument from the lesser to the greater, says, well, give me these four pieces that the scoffers want to to throw at us, and I will build the firm foundation of my resurrection and my second coming. This is not sinking sand. This is solid rock because it is taught in the Word of God. I have two more, and I must quickly do this. Number 11, the Bible is amazingly clear. The Reformers spoke of the perspicuity of the Scripture, and by that they mean that in matters of salvation, in essential matters of salvation, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, based upon the Word of God alone, it is conveyed in human language that is amazingly clear. You do not need tiers and layers of religious hierarchy to pontificate out of some back room what you suppose you think this says. It is spoken with amazing clarity. It is spoken with purposeuity, so much so that Jesus, when He responded to his critics in his day, so many times he would simply say something like this, can't you read? Can you not read? Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Did you never read in the Scripture? I thought you had a Bible. I thought you had two eyeballs. I thought you had a brain. I thought you had two cells that connected. Did you never read? How can you call yourself a doctor of the law? Have you never read in the Scripture the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone? Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. You are mistaken. Not understanding the Scriptures. You should understand the Scriptures at these most basic essential points. And we know that men are blinded in sin and in darkness 
But in no way does that remove their human responsibility before God to be held accountable by Him for this which is spelled out in ABC kindergarten language. Matthew twenty-two thirty-one. I love this. Have you not read? Can you not read the Bible? Check it out. It's all there. Mark twelve twenty-four. Jesus just said, is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the Scripture. The reason you are all wrong is because you do not understand the Bible. Can you not read? Jesus said it must be studied. He said, go and learn what this means. Matthew nine thirteen, And in John five thirty nine, He said the Scriptures must be searched. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify to me. Listen, search the Scripture. You can read. It testifies of me. John seven seventeen. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. Listen, God gives grace to the humble. He's opposed to the proud. These Pharisees could, were strutting their way to hell. So puffed up, so arrogant, so know-it-alls. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching. There is this perspicuity of Scripture. And yes, there are depths of the Word of God that we can barely plunge and there are so many truths we can barely get our arms around and we say, we love this because there is a God who is far beyond us. I wouldn't want to worship a God who was on my level, who knows what I know. And if what God knows could be put into my brain, all that He knows, that would be like pouring the Atlantic Ocean into a Dixie cup. It's just not going to fit. But on these essential truths, these essential points, there is clarity. It is lucid. There is perspicuity. Have you not read? The last truth that I want to lay before you of what Jesus affirmed about the Bible. The Bible is, number 12, incomparably powerful. There is no power on the earth like the power of God's Word. Often we speak of it as the sufficiency of Scripture. The power of the Word of God to address all that is necessary in the Christian life. But how sufficient and how powerful this book is. It does not need to be augmented. It stands alone. People ask Martin Luther, how do you defend the Bible? He said, defend the Bible, that's like defending a lion. The lion doesn't need to be defended. You just turn it loose. That's what Luther did. The Reformers did. And it brought to bear the intrinsic power of God upon the lives of those who came under its sway. It is powerful, one, for salvation, is it not? Time does not permit us to look at the parables in Matthew 13, but you recall how a sower went out to sow some seed and it fell on four different soils. Same sower, same seed, four different soils. And there was contained in that seed the very germ of life, the principle of life. 
And as only God can activate when it falls upon that soil that is broken up, that is fertile, that is receptive, that has been plowed up, God causes that seed to be germinated. And it is a picture of sovereign regeneration. And God causes there to be life. And God brings forth a harvest. That's what the Word of God does. Let me tell you, you can read funny books and it won't change your life. You can read golf magazines and it will only wear you out. I've read many books. This is the only book to ever read me. This book knows more about me than I know about me. I remember when I was in college and I first began to read the Bible seriously. I played on the football team. I remember I carried my New Testament around with me to class, to practice, wherever I went. I, I couldn't get enough of this book. This book literally grabbed me by the lapels and drew me up close and said, listen to me. And I poured over this book. And as I read this book, I had no study Bible. I had no commentaries. I knew nothing. I just had highlighters. And I tried to summarize out in the margin in a few words what that paragraph was saying. It was the only thing I knew to do to make sense of this. And as I read through this book, it was like God had been talking to my mother about me. I mean, everything that my parents had ever said about me that needed to be corrected, that needed to be worked on, there it was. This book is a mirror. And when you look into this law of liberty, you are looking into the transparent and the lucid Word of the living God, and you will see yourself as you truly are before God. And that leads to salvation. Because you'll never be saved until you truly see yourself for once as you truly are. That's why Calvin began his institutes, you must have a twofold knowledge. He says this in chapter 1, volume 1 of the Institutes, you need to know God and you need to know yourself. And salvation occurs when those two knowledges collide. It's sufficient for sanctification, is it not? John 17, 17, we just read that. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How about Jesus in the wilderness? How about... He, he didn't even have a support group around him. He didn't even have prayer partners to hold his hand. He was on his own. When your child goes off to college by himself, by herself, can he, can she hack it in the wilderness? Jesus shows us that with every advance of Satan, every assault upon our soul, every seductive, luring temptation that would be thrown at us as a hellish terrorist upon our life, Jesus responded by wielding the sword of the Spirit, the invincible Word of God, and saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a foolish test. It is written. Let me tell you, a Christian who is saturated with the Word of God is a force for the Lord. Finally, for spiritual passion. Don touched on this earlier. To have love for God. 
The Word of God is sufficient to inflame your heart with holy desire and love for Him. I want to tell you again, you don't need less Bible reading. You need more Bible reading. You don't need less Bible preaching. You need more Bible preaching. You don't need less of knowing the truth. You need more of knowing the truth. And the more the truth is brought to bear upon your soul and you implement it and internalize it, the more it is gas being poured on a fire and there is a spiritual igniting. Luke 24:32. those two disciples on the road to Emmaus said, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining Scripture? You know what causes your heart to be so fired up for God? Jesus says and affirms, or the disciples here affirmed, that while Jesus was explaining the Scripture, their hearts were raging with fire for Him. This is what Jesus believed about the Word of God. May we embrace this. May we stand upon it. May we dust off a spot for our lives and stand on the high ground of the inerrant, the infallible, the trustworthy Word of the living God. And we have it by testimony from the sovereign head of the church Himself, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank You that You have sent Your Son not only to die for our sins, but also to testify to us of the truth. He is the greatest expositor who ever lived. He is the greatest teacher who ever walked the earth. He was the great expounder of the truth. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. And He has now spoken to us this morning and last night regarding His testimony of the written Word of God. His testimony of sola scriptura. He fenced off the Word of God. He separated and sanctified the Word of God from the tradition of men and the authority of men and empty and dead religion. And He affirmed that Scripture is in its singular place the Word of the living God. Lord, Affirm our confidence in this book. And I pray You would deepen our passion for this book, for it gives us passion for You. We see it as a means to that higher end to worship and adore You. Bless these people who so love Your Word. May they be humble and contrite in spirit, and may they tremble at Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray.